Welcome to another very special episode of Vanilla Weiss and the Nostalgic Nerds. And today with us, we have two new guests. One of them is my college buddy, Coley Dooley, from the Florida Keys, Tavernier to be exact. Um, he's a former music ma- college music major, and with us today, we've got an extremely special guest. This guy tours nationally throughout the United States. He is an all-around entertainer from comedy, circus acts, professional stunts. Let's give a huge warm welcome to my man, Philip Johnson, a.k.a. Mooney. Thank you, Dan. Good to be here. Great to have you. So, um, Mooney, how did you manage, um, when you were a kid, who were some of your biggest inspirations and for doing what you do? Well, you know, it's funny, like, I, I, you didn't mention one of the things that I do, which is, uh, you know, it's sort of generic, like, I'm an actor, but I mean, I have, I'm in all the unions and have done some pretty good profile high profile theater gigs and been on television so for me my, my my childhood inspirations weren't really comedic they were acting and i only discovered i was always funny like i was voted class clown in in eighth grade and high school but i, I just only thought of it as being an actor so my my early influences were uh like honestly like lee majors from six million dollar man you know i'm I'm a little older than you so you know it was acting uh you know burt lancaster um as an actor but i always you know i always liked the uh the three stooges but but i, I thought they were a little aggressive and uh, over the top but i watched a lot of them so really my, my earliest influences until i got to be you know, right at the end of high school and college that I started really looking at comedy more seriously. So, um, the Three Stooges, yeah, I was a big fan of them. With them, it wasn't just their slapstick that they were known for. I didn't really like their slapstick, but I loved their one-liners and their play on words. Yeah, yeah. It was the slapstick was, I, it was a little too a little too aggressive for me. But I, mean, I still watched it because I was a kid. Like it was, We only had three channels. You know, you had to watch something. <laughs> so, yeah, um, when when you were in college, did you, were you a acting major? Were you like a theater major? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And weirdly, as an, as an actor, um, I, I, I graduated from college with a BS in theater, which I could have got the BA, but I thought the BS in theater would be just a little more appropriate. And um, I went immediately into comedy because there was money in it. And so I, and I kind of put the acting on hold a little bit, um, but I did, I was a theater guy and, you know, I, I've always considered myself an actor more than a comedian, but now I think I consider, I don't consider myself either one more than the other. They're both equally important 
to me. How did you learn uh, how to mime? Because a big part of your act is a lot like miming. Like when you're Mooney, you don't re- you don't really speak till the end. You do a lot of like sound effects and sort of. So yeah, how did is miming something you learned at an early age? No, it really wasn't. I, I it's basically I, I the reason I I I got into the the nonverbal stuff was because I started doing shows verbally and I wasn't very good and I thought, well, what if I just take away the the words and focus on the actions and it just felt like it it simplified things a lot more and it immediately took off for me as far as what 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 i was uh, my my impact like i think the lap when i was talking it was just it was intermittent (laughs) and that's a lonely feeling as you well know uh to you know intermittently be entertaining and once i stopped talking then it was a matter of just refining it down and finding things that worked and were more uh, that fit in better with the flow of everything. And just, you know, when you do anything ten thousand times, you know, you have a lot of chances to be, uh, you know, to refine and, and you know, fine tune things. Like even to to the point of like, well, how does my how does my hand? What's the angle of my hand? I mean, it's very specific because it's physical, and so I'm creating pictures with my body. And I didn't have any training. I just did it. I just learned on the way. And I kind of fell into it backwards by just taking. Sorry. Um. Yeah, you're cutting out. Um. Uh... Do you think it'll work better if you take um the phone off speaker? Um, yeah, you're kind of cutting out. Okay, sorry. Uh, let me make sure that I'm connected to Wi-Fi. I am. Okay. Um. Okay. Is that better? Yeah, that's better. Um. So yeah. Um, we missed the last part. You kind of cut out, but you were talking about. The you you were talking about um your nonverbal acting. What got you into that? Yeah, I I, I kind of fell out of it. I kind of fell into it uh, by by subtracting the words, and I just as soon as I did that, I started becoming. I, I started was funnier more often, and. And it just was a matter of refining over, you know, the last 30 years from the, to the point of like, you know, how do I hold my hand on this particular move? What's, do I get a better laugh? You know, it's like when you do anything 10,000 times, you get a lot of, a lot of rehearsal. Each, each, each show is a rehearsal for the next show. How long did it take to acquire the skill of um, fire eating? Cause that's something most people can't do. That really is just a thing where if someone says, here, do this, this, and this, go, you know, that's really all it is. It's, it's really kind of a, 
whether you have the uh, the balls to do it or the desire to do it. It's not it's not a actually a, a skill that you have to practice. It's just a matter of am I willing to put this burning thing into my mouth and extinguish it? And I only do it in the in my end of the day show with my partner Bruno. I don't do it in my regular show mainly because I didn't want to. I didn't want all kinds of petroleum products in my body all day. So I, so it's not, it's not hard really. It's just a matter of whether you want to do it or not. Like, and the same thing with fire breathing, because with fire breathing, you've got to, you got to take a mouthful or not a whole mouthful. That'd be too much, but uh, just, you know, an ounce or two of gasoline, uh, not fuel for the car, but like, you know, lighter fluid and just aspirate it into the fire you know are you willing to do that you know <laughs> it's just you'd want to have someone give you you know the top 10 things to pay attention to but after that there's really it's just a matter of being willing to do it so how many years um have you been doing it in total which thing um like the circus acts the nonverbal acting and the stunts and stuff yeah, I, I started, I like when I was 26, I'm 59, right? So that was like 33, 34 years now that I've been doing that. I did another show, first off, called, uh, did you see that at, when you were at the festival? Um. Yeah, I saw the solo show, the one you did, be, you do before the one with Brune. Oh no! I the mud show. Did you did you see the mud show? It's a different show. Oh yeah, yeah, I did see the mud show once. Oh, one of the three times I was there. Okay, cool. So that's that's where I started out was doing the mud show, and that's how I kind of learned how to deal with audience dynamics and you know the ritual change energy that you know. And then that I I moved into my 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 other show, but. And I started doing that when I was like 19 years old. And then I got my own show when I was 26. So a long time, you know, just a long, it's, it's been a whole lifetime of, of uh, going out there one show at a time and making a living. So you've been doing it for about 40 years now? Yeah, I've been, yeah, I've been making people laugh for 40 years, you know, as a, as a job. I haven't had a, a lucky enough to make that and raise four kids, you know, all on, uh, for the most part, comedy. There have been some good acting gigs along the way, but that never was a uh, a full-time money-making deal. It was just like, ooh, cool, here's a good one, <laughs> every now and again. Yeah, acting um, is a really hard field to get into because it's so competitive, because, like, Everybody wants to be an actor, but only 1% actually make it. Yeah, and you have to be committed 100% full-time, and I started reproducing. And um, they, they need to eat, so that reality, I could have, I believe I could have done, I don't know if I've been famous or anything, but I was always successful doing that as well. And I've all, I have had a career throughout my life doing acting things as well uh but you to be to raise a family you know to have a, a, a life other than just 100 throwing yourself against the wall to, to try to get acting jobs 
pretty hard to make a sorry, pretty hard to make a living doing that. So I just my main focus was always you know comedy because it's black and white. Either you're funny or you're not. You know, like acting. There's a lot of gray area. There's a lot of other people making decisions based on things that aren't really factual. You know, either either they're laughing or they're not. Comedy is blue collar. Either you can fix it or you can't. You know. Yeah, that's what I do. Full, what I do um, almost every night is stand-up comedy. And yeah, I know how much it really can throw you off if you happen to get a stiff crowd that's not laughing. And then you question. it makes you question after your set, all right, was I just not funny or was it the audience? Because a lot of times you could have a great set but if it's a stiff crowd um the audience isn't gonna laugh because they're not paying attention yeah yeah and do you find that like because i did the same thing over and over again it's the same show i do it differently because there's a lot of i bring people up there's audience participation so different, different energies and different input every single show but you're as a stand-up like you're you're like it's just you and the crowd so um, do you, do you find it more that it, that it happens more when you're trying out new stuff or if you've got like, let's your best type 15 minutes, do you feel confident that you could kill pretty much every time? Um, yeah, I think it also depends on the venue. Like I'll go somewhere like the improv and almost every time it's a good crowd, I'll have a good set. But a lot of times if I'm performing at like a bar where everybody's been drinking and everyone's allowed to talk to each other, um, I've had a very tough time reaching out to the crowd. I imagine. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm pretty, I'm pretty aggressive about it, about, uh, maintaining my area, you know, uh, and they're, there's, they're, they come into my area to watch the show. Theoretically, there's chaos, you know, sometimes people just, they got other stuff going on. So I'm pretty aggressive about maintaining focus on the, the, the stage. But you can't do that when you're in a bar, you know, people are drinking and they've got, there's too many different agendas going on. I can imagine, but there's just no way. I mean, I could make it work, but it would just be so much aggression <laughs> just have to be like just doing shit that makes people go well, what's wrong with him like just to get them to pay attention to begin with you know once you get them to pay attention then you just have to maintain control or maintain the connection but you've got to get them first and there's different ways to do it even as a silent clown actually it can kind of work to your advantage if you just start doing stuff that makes people go what the hell is that guy doing what is he even doing does it make sense you know and then and then they they wonder what you're doing, and then they're more apt to just on their own make that decision. But if you try to just yell at them, it's, I, don't see, I can't see how that would work. And um, Coley actually was a former music major, and he too, so he's familiar with um, how hard it is to really get your foot in the door with showbiz. Um, he went out to try to be a musical score director, but... Um, but he real um he realized that it's one of those crafts that you have to literally like dedicate your life to. So yeah, Coley, isn't that true? Yeah, yeah. So 
I actually went out to do movie scores. That was like my goal at first. I have been in music since fifth grade. And I went and I studied music theory. I did write my own pieces. Um, but yeah, you know, there's a select few that are gifted that get the ops an opportunity. And then the rest of them are, you know, trying to work their way into what they can do with their music talents that they have. So yes, it's a very difficult thing to do. Sometimes you got to know the right people to get the right job. Philip, are you a fan of music? Well, absolutely. Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think I can't imagine very many people aren't, you know? It's just, it's just it can drive into, it can hook into your soul and your spirit and just instantly, very, like very few things can. Who are some of your musical heroes, would you say? Well, I think probably the greatest musical hero for me would be Tom Waits with his ability to um, create sounds and textures that are off the beaten path but are still resonant within the, 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 the mainstream culture. I think he. I think he. He takes. A, he splinters off without going off like in, into a completely new direction. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I. I never. I never wanted to be so separate that I was in a a completely different category. You know, I got, I've got cousin, two cousins who are they're married, so they're not one's cousin by marriage. They're experimental composers in Chicago and. It, you really have to work to, to 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 understand that music. It's it's a whole different world. Than most people are not going to take the time to to really try to understand it. So, Coley, are you familiar with that artist? Actually, I I don't know that I am familiar too much with that artist, but I would agree with him one hundred percent. Um, like I said, I grew up with music and I can tell you it's a totally different language. There was time where I took a break from music, didn't touch my music theory books. Then years later, I picked up my music theory books, started reading them through them again. I'm like, this is like that. And it is. It's a totally different language. So I totally agree with what he's saying. Yeah. Um, what's it called? The music, the scores in a movie people don't even realize how important they are because musical scores are a big part of what make a movie, what make you feel a certain way in certain scenes. Yeah, and I would say this. I'd say, look at Titanic, look at Braveheart, look at all of these, you know. Freaking, you could just look at Star Wars, all right? Take away all the music from that movies. And yeah, it'll be nice. It'll be pretty good, but it won't be the same. Now, my expression is that music is the intangible expression of emotion. Something you can feel. And you, necessarily, you just can't touch it, though. Yeah, that's good. I like that. It's, it, 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 it underscores the emotional content of the scene. And without it, you're, it's just not going to be nearly as impactful. Yeah, like Titanic particularly, I mean, the music in the background was a big part of what made it so sad and touching was, 
um, without the score, you wouldn't have felt half the chemistry that we did for our two main characters. Yeah, and, and I was talking with somebody recently about about listening to film scores just on their own, separate, you know, just like recordings of film, start, film scores. There's, you know, a lot of people that love to do that. And and there's part of the film score, which is which which is similar to the lighting. You're, you shouldn't even notice the lighting. It should be there to help you understand and tell the story and help underscore content and the and the film score is often the same way you're so focused in on the scene that you don't necessarily even pay attention to the music the music is just part of the film and the way that it underscores the the emotional content of the scene without drawing attention to itself now that's like that seems to be like the great arts of, of filmmaking that you just yeah. And I want to just have to jump in there real quick. So this just, you know, came into my head. I didn't think about it until like right now. You think of Psycho. Think of Jaws. Think of all these movies. And even today, you know, where the music builds up to something, you know something's about to come. And you can feel it just by the music. And mm -hmm. it's that, like you said, it's in that background. You don't necessarily pay attention to it. But you know when that music starts to get a certain way, something is about to go down. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, Jaws would never have had uh, had eighty per. It would have had about ninety percent less effect than it did. The musical scores would made that movie so suspenseful because as soon as you heard the dunna dunna dunna, that's when you knew the shark was coming. Totally. Saw that movie. I'm 59, so like I was 12. Movie came out. It was terrifying. Just it was so scary. It was awesome. Yeah, and um, with Rocky, I mean, a big part of what made makes the Rocky movie so memorable is the famous musical score. stairs you know they they the the that they invented the steady cam which is the, the camera that they used to film a lot of scenes where it's attached to the, the cameraman's body and they can move around that was invented for that movie to go up those stairs and so, um, and and rocky holds a special place in my heart because i grew up in philadelphia so I was familiar with all the landmarks and the stairs that he ran up and everything. That's a beautiful art museum. I would highly recommend checking it out if you're ever in Philly. I've never been to Philly. It's just one of those big cities that never came up. I've, you know, Pittsburgh, been all around, but somehow Philly just hasn't happened yet. But I gotta get there. It's there's so many great things there. I'm, from what I've heard, like, you know, but I just haven't made it. Yeah, I can recommend the best cheesesteak places if you're ever there. And, yeah, no, Pat's and Gino's are not nearly as good as a lot of the places. I know they're the most famous, but, yeah, there's a lot of better cheesesteak places than those two. Yeah, but, yeah, you gotta get the entire partner. We were, he's from Maryland, we were... And we went to this crab, uh, you know, seafood restaurant. It's like 
just take my word for it, get the crab cakes. And it was, I think, the best thing I've ever, I've ever put in my mouth. I think it's just fantastic. You got to get the insiders. I'll tell you where to go. Yeah. So, um, what movies were there? Any specific movies that inspired you to want to become an actor? Star Wars movies um, were, and, and John Belushi in um, the Blues Brothers, just the, the way, I think this great storytelling is, is, is really the, the, the thing that made me want to be an actor, you know, because great storytelling points up just like storytelling at its pinnacle it is so exciting and i think that's what i that's what i responded to and so it could have been any movie so i, I don't really there's no very few movies that really like jump out for me like above other ones i'm a fan of plenty of movies but you know just it for me it's just being caught in the grip of the story and it can be in a play or a tv show or a movie Give me, give me great storytelling, and I'm happy. Yeah, John Belushi. Oh man, such a sad story. Um, because he um had one of the most promising starts of any actor ever, and imagine how many more classics he would have made if not for his early death. Yeah, I mean, it just he went so hard, so fast. It was just. I remember when he died too. I remember hearing about it. I remember where I was. It was it was such a devastating moment. It was terrible. Oh yeah, Animal House. That movie and and, uh, and uh, the one the, the Bill Murray Caddyshack. I was a kid. Like those movies are just making me laugh so hard. The Animal House and Caddyshack just are. <laughs> No, I just see would still like to watch those movies just laugh my ass off. Yeah, yes, I haven't seen Animal House, but I have seen Caddyshack, and I actually live about less than 10 minutes from where Caddyshack was filmed. Really? Yeah, it was filmed at, filmed at the Rolling Hills Country Club in um, Davie, Florida. Wow. Awesome. I, I did a, a TV show with Bill Murray. Actually, Bill Murray and, his, and two of his brothers. Um, one's on Comedy Central, and you know we were there shooting. We were shooting in Jamaica. And it was a golf show, and, and they were telling me all kinds of great stories about Caddyshack and the making of Caddyshack, and and just and being one of my favorite movies. Uh, that I, <laughs> I was it was so cool to to hear you know some of the insider stuff and how it was how it was uh how it was made and you know that's that big time fun yeah um i so regret the fact that i never got to see rodney dangerfield live growing up he's one of my absolute favorites but um yeah he died 
pretty much the same year that I first really got into stand-up comedy. Yeah, he and he got in late too. Like he he was already like forty before he started his career. It was he was an anomaly, man. Su- super funny guy. Yeah, super funny, and he's the epitome of somebody who turned lemons into lemonade because he really didn't get much respect in his life, lived a really sad life and how he was treated, but he turned it into his act and made it one of the most iconic acts of all time. Yeah, isn't that the... I mean, like, the thing that's different for my show is is I'm doing the same show, and I don't talk, and it's a performance. We're, we're, we're swimming in energy. That's what it's all about. It's just the exchange of energy, and we don't know what's going to happen because I, I can't control what you all are going to do, right? But with stand-up, there's so much revelation of your own personal shit and and what is who you really are. Yeah, you can, you know, you can judge it one way or the other, you know, about just to make it a little funnier. You have to, you have to touch down deep into your soul in order to get out the truth, you know, otherwise the audience is going to sniff it out. You, you, you got to, you got to be real. Nothing's funnier than the truth, so you might as well just, you know, spill your guts. Yeah, I I just got to hit stop recording real quick because, yeah, the we're back. So, yeah, um, during the quick um pause, my friend, um, before we paused, Mooney was telling us about how stand-up comedy derives from a lot of your own personal shit, and Coley and I can actually tell you some of our personal shit back in the day from when he lived near me in South Florida. He and I went through some crazy adventures that I incorporated into my comedy act. Isn't that right, Coley? That is absolutely true. Uh, let's just put it this way. There were five colleges where we lived, and we lived in a suburb of Fort Lauderdale that was ridiculously run by college kids. So, yes, some major wild adventure. <laughs> Mooney, did you used to have any um crazy stories from, like, your college days or, or your upbringing? Yeah, I mean, I, I had a pretty, I had a pretty sober upbringing. Like, far as like, it wasn't super adventurous, you know. It was mom and dad still together, four kids, suburbs. You know, it was pretty, pretty tame. But then, once you go to college, then yeah, you know, you're gonna definitely there's gonna be some drugs. There's gonna be some, some you know, gals and and. But really, my main adventure started happening after afterwards when I started going out on the road and trying to perform and, and failing, you know, <laughs> like failure is not only the best teacher, but it's also the funniest shit that, that happens in my opinion. Yeah. Coley and I definitely, um, neither he or I were ever into drugs, but we were around a bunch of people who were heavy into drugs. And, um, this, yeah. 
I mean, I'm talking marijuana, you know, nothing, nothing, nothing serious. Like I just smoke a little pot, you know? Oh yeah. Well, same here. Um, I mean, I don't smoke a lot anymore, but for many years I was a pot smoker, but I never did any like heavy drugs or anything. Meanwhile, no. Coley and I, eight years ago when Flocka was a huge epidemic in South Florida, Flocka was really bad and almost everybody who was hanging out at Coley's apartment were big Flocka heads. What's a flock? What's flock? I don't even know what that is. Okay, so uh, to be clear, that these people were not like hanging out at my apartment because I brought over drug addicts. Okay, but Flocka was a big deal, <laughs> and my sister, who is a toxicologist, said that the closest thing they can get uh, Flocka to was bath salts. And there is an actual story that took place while we were living down there of someone uh, literally eating the face of a homeless man while he was sleeping because that person was so doped up on this stuff that they're mainly zombies oh my god that's 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 wretched that's awful yeah i think yeah. that that happened in what was it 2014 that was in miami yeah it was in miami and that was probably about the time it happened but yeah no, no that was the stuff you know that happened around that time it was crazy and then of course we've got people that you know again we don't want to hang out with drug addicts but they're around there anyhow and they try and convince you stupid stuff like oh these are mosquito bites now i'm gonna tell you something i'm from south florida i know what a mosquito bite looks like and you saw that ain't no mosquito bite so <laughs> no yeah, you gotta you gotta steer clear of the hard stuff. I mean, I'm, it's I got kids now, and, and with the, the fentanyl and just coming in, my my kids are clean, but you don't you can just be next to it and have someone blow it in your face, and and it, it can be fatal. It's super scary. Yeah, it's next level. Next level, brutal. Yeah. Um. Luckily, that was something that. I, I never, even in my college days, I never experimented with because I knew that how easily it is to get hooked on the hard stuff and that a lot of that stuff can be a one and done type deal or um, like heroin, you can get addicted the very first time you use it. So once you're addicted, you're stuck with it for life. Unacceptable. Like, just don't even go there. Not even once. God forbid. So, when you were in college, um, what were some of the epidemics? Do you remember? Well, it was for me. It wasn't the, so many of the drugs. Of course, I've you know, hands been around a long time, but nobody was doing that, and nobody was really doing coke and. Crack was just starting, but it was, you know, in the inner cities, it wasn't out in the cornfields where I was going to college. But the thing that was when I was when I was young was AIDS. AIDS. I learned about AIDS um, when I was, you know, like tw 20 years old in college. Prime years for going out and dating and it was just like, oh my God, you know, you're going to, you're going to 
you're going to die if you do that, you know, but, but I, you're going to die if you don't, cause you're, you're, you're 21 years old and you're a guy and you, you've got seed to spill, you know, like it's kind of, you're going to, you got to go out and sow your oats. So it was a very, very terrifying, intense uh, time to live as far as that. And, and, and I'm not, I'm not a hypochondriac, but there's, I remember obsessing over that I, oh my God, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. And, and I was so terrified. I was talking to these two, two uh, gals who were older than us. We were doing shows. I was doing the, the mud show and they lived in, in New England and that's where the shows we were doing it. And I was like, I just don't know if, I don't know if I could, if I got it. I'm so terrified. I'm so terrified. I got it. And then you start thinking you're, you know, you're, tired all the time and you start making up symptoms in your brain and you're an idiot and, and then I tell these two ladies and these two that <laughs> I was not romantically involved with at all and 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 one of them was like well and they both worked at Mass General and maybe I knew that maybe that's why I was like like maybe you'll give me some advice or something but anyway that one of them goes you know I work for the biggest oncologist in in New England, uh, and if you want, you can just come and see him, and he'll test you and take your blood. And like, well, okay, okay, that would be great. And the other one, and and then she goes, and this one, she works in billing. She'll just erase the bill. <laughs> this was before computers like was doing everything, so it was like, I was like, well, that's an offer I can't say no to. So. Uh, you know, there's one of them got me into the, the oncologist. The other one just erased the bill. When um, being in showbiz, um, I, I know a lot of entertainers end up getting on drugs. Did you witness a lot of that um, as an entertainer when you were in on like the acting scene or anything? No, no, most most of the, you know, alcohol, of course, you know, everybody loves to drink, but we were, everybody does. They're young. You know, you're young. Nobody really was doing, doing hard stuff as far as, as far as I saw. And, and if they were, I was, I would not have gone around. I'm a big believer. And if you lay with dogs, you're going to get fleas, you know, you just don't, don't be around it. So now most, most of the people that I was around in, in, in the acting world, we're pretty serious about it, and you've got to work hard in order to get noticed, and you don't want to screw it up. Uh, luckily, no. But yeah, um, what uh, a lot of times, especially with comedians, you can almost tell by their stage presence whether or not um they're on drugs, like. Robin Williams, it was a no-brainer that he was always coked up. I hate to say that. Um, I don't want to sound disrespectful to somebody who's not living, but yeah, you could tell from his stage presence that he was on something. He was so frenetic, but he was also it. It was so brilliant. Like, but I wonder if I wonder if it had an effect on him later on when he just started getting so just so depressed. I have no idea about it. Like just when you use too much, it has to have an effect on your brain over the long haul. 
Was he one, one of your inspirations? Was Robin Williams an inspiration to you for comedy? You know, I think I, I didn't. I wasn't a huge fan of his acting, but I was a huge fan of his comedy, like Mork of Mork and Mindy, and then seeing him do stand up, and you know, some. And I saw him do impro- improvising Shakespeare one time on a on the Dick Cavett show, and this was long, long ago, and it was unbelievable he was i think robin williams was so brilliant and so beyond what most people can imagine that i i i just i never felt like i was in his league as far as the brilliance of his mind and where what he could do i was just like i couldn't even comprehend it so i i, I admired him but i was more i would say i would be more influenced by bill murray uh, his his style, a little slower, a little sarcastic, a little more sardonic. That was a little bit more my speed. But Robin Williams was, if he was, you know, doing drugs, it had to have been coke because he was going a mile a minute, man, and and just blew you away. Like I never never seen anything like it. Yeah, and um. As much as you may say that they were out of your league at the same time, I'm sure they would probably say the same about you in terms of a lot of the stunts that you can do. I'm sure that they could never have pulled off the kind of physical stunts that you do. Well, I appreciate you saying that's nice. Nice. Uh, that's kind. Um, and I think there there is uh, there is some truth to that. It's just, I, you don't get the kind of respect like from the world. There's a hierarchy in comedy, and and we all well know that like prop comics are a step. And the more, the more, the more props you use, and the more stunts you use, the lower you are down on the comedic ladder. But I stopped worrying about that a long time ago. You know, I'm just give me 600 people, and I know that I'm going to make them laugh. I, I'm a hundred percent sure. And I love, I love that confidence. I love being able to go out in front of people and not question how it's going to go that time because it's a machine. I'm, I know how it works and it, it is really beautiful to experience that. And there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a quote, um, uh, there's an actor who was an English actor in the the late 19th century. His name was Henry Irving. And back then in those days, they used to, um, the, 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 the head of the company, the actor manager, they were called, they would go out after the, their performance. And instead of a curtain call, they would, they would give a speech. And he gave a speech one time that in this biography that I read about where he said, thank you for your applause and thank you for all of your extra applause and the way you cheer. He said, what you don't know is, is that the more of that that you give us, the more, the further we feel comfortable to go. So there is this partnership that happens and the more connected you can become with your audience, and vice versa, for the audience to feel connected to you as the performers. As we go into that trance together, the deeper that that connection is and the more they respond positively, the more you feel free to improvise, to try, to go and push. And 
that is the confidence that I'm talking about going out and doing the show that I do over and over and over again, because they want it and they love it. And they give me that permission to go further and further and further. And some guys who, you know, like Kevin Hart, you know, you're, it just feels like that guy just goes nuts when he gets that applause and it gives him the permission to go further and further and further. He actually and, grew up right around where I did. Um, He grew up in Lower Marion Township on the outskirt of Philly, like right around where I did. Yeah. Yeah. I know a couple of people older than me who actually had a couple of classes with him. And yeah, they said that he was always a class clown, that they weren't surprised when he got into stand up because they said he was like the one in class who was always a wise guy who was always cracking jokes and stuff during class. Yeah, I mean, some stuff, you, you know, like, like. I was I was the same way. I was class clown eighth grade, senior year in high school. I was the one that was cracking jokes and making people laugh and doing funny stunts. It wasn't just like lines, but like doing funny things with my body, walking into doors on purpose, just being an idiot, you know. And it makes sense that Kevin Hart was the same way, you know, because he you can tell he's he's he is just big balls comedy, you know. He just. He has no fear whatsoever, or that's the way it comes across to me when he's on stage. Yeah, Cole, I actually pretty much got Coley into comedy, um, because I don't think Coley really followed too many um stand-up comics until we went one year on his birthday to see Ralphie May back in like two thousand nine. And then he and I started going to a bunch of shows that year, and he developed a big liking for comedy, right, Coley? Yeah, I came found out that, you know, being a part of the act, being in it, so I'm, I'm a, I'm a person, personal, you know, communication, interpersonal is big on me. So being there and being part of the act in the interpersonal sense was definitely part of the appeal yeah because that year i think we saw at least like four or five comics and yeah we saw him we saw gilbert gottfried that year we saw david allen greer jamie kennedy yeah and we continued to go to that place until the time i left isn't that right yeah but yeah, Coley and I used to always joke around with each other, like, all the time. We we took um a lot of the crazy people we knew, and we would always make jokes about them. Um, <laughs> yeah, craziness makes easy prey. I remember, <laughs> I remember one year for when my birthday was coming up, and I sent out a Facebook invite, and... So I didn't have a car and neither did Coley, so I told everybody on the invite to meet at Coley's place so we could decide who um uh, who was carpooling with who and I sent out like over two hundred invites and he's like, Well if that many people show up, I'm gonna charge them for entry and for parking. 
<laughs> Why not make it a money making enterprise? <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> right? Yeah, but am I gonna have to split the difference with him or can I just keep it being that it's at my place? <laughs> I'm gonna let you guys work that out. <laughs> and his apparent his parents had an account with Yellow Cab at the time and so that he was able to order cabs and it would be charged to his parents' account. I was joking with him. I'm like, would you mind ordering over 50 cabs for everybody that night? Oh my God. Uh, that's the end. That's the end of that Crowe train. If you did. Yeah. Yeah. And Dan, let's you know, how many, uh, wild speaking of crazy cab drivers and experiences that we had. Oh yeah. Like that one time we got that one cabbie who, refused to use her GPS and kept getting us lost. And then she wasn't letting us out of the cab when we were telling her to let us out. We were on the verge of having to call the cops because she kept driving us around in circles and was refusing to let us out of the cab. What was her end? Well, and then at that point, the cab fare ended up being $50 for a place that was not supposed to cost that much money to go to. And yeah, we were like, look, just stop driving around. You're you're racking up the cab and we want to go. She's like, no, I have to take you to your destination. And it was getting pretty creepy. That's strange. Do you think she was just running up the tab on purpose? I do. I do. And I know that I'm, you know. I know for having had as many cabs that I had, there's ones that take the long road for a reason. If oh, you yeah. don't know the area and you've never been there before, they have no problem taking the long way. I bet. And I, my, we were we were in Italy once, and uh, I was one of my best friends, super famous rock star, and we were on a yacht, and he at the end of the this day on this yacht, they were. Sh- they were ferrying us to the shore. We weren't, the yacht was moored not too far off the shore. And so we were on one of these little blow up boats that brought in and there were cabs waiting for us. And we get in the cab and this is on the Isle of Capri, you know, in Italy. And, and the, the, and the guys just going. And I look at the, the meter and it's already at 25 euros. And, and I'm like, wait, 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 wait. It's already, it already, it's already, and he's like, no, no, I've been waiting. I've been waiting. I'm like, no, oh, no, that's fine. But, that's not on us. Like I gotta pay yeah. twenty five euros for your wait time. And he's like, No, no, I have to wait. And and he wouldn't listen. And so finally I started yelling, Basta, basta, which means yeah. enough, enough, enough. Like because I don't speak Italian, but I just start yelling basta, basta. And my wife, she's embarrassed. And she's like, Why do you keep yelling pasta? And I'm like, no, I feel like Basta. And finally, the guy, right. it was us fighting about Basta and Pasta that the guy's like, I can't take it. So he just re- he just reset it to, to zero. <laughs> yeah, well, hey, now you got a new way to uh, make people do your bidding. Just make them uncomfortable. <laughs> you just, oh, man, I can outcome out uncomfortable anybody. That's what uh, <laughs> I'm willing yeah. to use that tool, too. Yeah, and I don't know about Italy, but I know in South Florida and probably other parts of the country, those people have a preset start. Like it would start at 125, and you have no no control over that. So at the very least, you were paying probably about 
six, seven bucks, not just to go around the corner. Yeah. Yep. And back, thank God for Uber because before Uber, South Florida cabbies used to take forever to get to you because they knew that you were stuck with them, whether that you had no other options. And there were times that we would call them like an hour before a movie we were going to catch that was like 15 minutes away. And we would be on the verge of missing the movie. We'd like get there just as all the previews were ending because they would take like over 45 minutes to pick us up. Yeah, no, but Dan, I got one better than that. Do you remember when we were outside the cinema after like an 11 p.m. or 10.30 p.m. movie for two hours and this security guard woman comes by because we've been sitting there and it's like midnight. What are you doing here? And we're like, we're waiting for our cab. That was actually a... Let me see your ID. That was actually a cop, not even a security guard. It was a cop who saw us standing there for over an hour and for two hours and she finally came up to see why we were just standing there and funny enough then she called the cab company for us and gave them a ultimatum look you guys need to get here and they need to get home and once she spoke to them is when they finally got there yeah good but but yeah we literally it was insane we it took a cop calling them in order for them to finally come when we'd been waiting two hours in a parking lot at two in the morning. Yeah, now with Uber, I bet you Uber and what's the other one? Um, Lyft. Lyft, yeah. They, um, now the cabs are like, oh, no, we'll be right there. We'll be right there. Now that there's some competition, they're probably they're doing their, their job a lot better. Probably. Competition. Yeah, well, and see, that's the other thing. When it was probably Uber because Lyft came along after Uber. Once Uber started coming into Broward County in South Florida, the cab unions filed a major lawsuit to prevent any of those people coming in. They they wanted this monopoly, and for a while they got it, but eventually Uber came in, and yeah, those cabbies are probably pretty trying to do their job pretty well because they're in the minority yeah yeah it's hard it's hard to it's hard to compete with them the uber although it's gotten a lot more expensive so i'm not sure uber is necessarily the best option anymore but yeah i use lyft lyft seems to be cheaper uber tried uber started out as one thing then tried to make itself into a luxury operation which is you know my mom still uses Uber. She can pay what she wants to pay. I do Lyft. Point being, yes, they've gone over the top to try and make the bottom line. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, we dealt with that all the time with cabs. Like, it would be a half hour before the movie started. We would have to call them for like the fourth time. Hey, are you guys on your way? <laughs> <laughs> brutal yeah oh my god and it's giving an idea about you know how much i used cabs i made friends with cab drivers and when they heard my name on the radio they went out of their way to come pick me up and there was one cab driver i know 
that I remember his kid being in the car at like five, and then I remember seeing the kid again, and he was like 12. That's how wow. much I knew this guy. Because he wow. was, yeah. Yeah, I'll never forget once when we um were outside of this restaurant we used to go to and we called the cab and this there were like five different um locations for this restaurant they go to the wrong location and we didn't know and there happened to be a cab right across the street of the same company and we're like yelling at them come on we're behind you we're across the street and they're like, there is no across the street. And then we saw that cab drive off and we're yelling on the phone, no, you're driving away from us. You're driving away from us. Oh, God, that must have been so, so, so frustrating. Yeah. He's like, what do you yeah. mean? I have, uh, he's like, I'm not even moving. We're like, yeah, we see you driving away. Yeah, so now that is the issue because I don't think at that point in time, cabbies had gps's in their car so if you couldn't tell them like you didn't know directions and tell them exactly where it was it wasn't happening they didn't know where to go and if they did they you know that's how it was and yeah the public transportation in south florida is also really bad so like um it, with buses, if you want to take a city bus, it takes like 45 minutes between each bus. So if you happen to just miss one bus, you were screwed and had to stand there for over a half hour waiting for the next one. <laughs> yeah. And if, um, what's it called? The, if you didn't have a car, you would have to take um, a cab to like the train station if you wanted to take a train and then you, there was no guarantee the cabs would get there on time so there were times it, so that there was a risk of missing your train what kind of train uh, like a tri-rail yeah a tri-rail yeah it's a pretty good service though i mean it goes right up i don't know how far north and south it goes but it it north-south, but it's not going to get you east-west. Yeah, I know. I needed somebody to drive me to the train station once when I was going to the Miami airport because I wasn't willing to take the risk with a cab. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing about, like, South well, Florida in general, I would say. So, I don't really drive. And I tell you, I didn't have a car back then when I, I was down there. I just got and a hit. You cannot get away, in, uh, you know, anywhere in Florida without a car. Because things are just that far apart. I just got to hit stop recording real quick and re-record. So, yeah, um, so, so, yeah, as Coley was saying, it's, like, impossible to get around without a car in South Florida, Florida in general, but... South Florida, it's particularly bad. Um, did um, when well, you, I, I know in Chicago, their um public transportation is plentiful. Can't you get around without a car in Chicago? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They've got a, a pretty all-encompassing bus system, but they also have a a, a very good. Um, it's not great like New York 
Um, but it's it's still pretty gosh darn good um, train um, system. We call it the L in Chicago. I prefer yeah. after after driving. You know, I drive. You know, I drive most of the time. But when I'm doing plays in Chicago, I always take public transportation. I much prefer. I'm a fan of public transportation if it doesn't add, you know, a tremendous amount of time. You know, I don't want to spend three hours instead of an hour. If it's worth it's that I'll drive. But I would rather take you know, it's my time. If you're on if you're on the train and you got an hour train ride, like bam, let somebody else drive. It's, yeah. it's a no brainer. Does the Renaissance Festival ever come to Chicago? It's not in Chicago, but we have we have the the big one here. It's my favorite show to do. It's called the Bristol Renaissance Fair, and it's right on the state line uh, between uh, Milwaukee and Chicago. And it's been that's where I started. I started there in 1981, so 42 years ago. My buddy was like, "Hey, you want to come do the Renaissance Fair?" And I'm like, "What's that?" Like, well, and then uh, and then he left me there. Well, I can't believe that was 42 years ago. That that was three years before I was born. <laughs> yeah. Age the guy out and just give him a hard time about it, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, the, the, have any of your stunt, your, uh, stunts ever gone wrong? Um, was there ever a time when you did like a risky stunt and it went wrong? <laughs> You know, I've, I've had, I, I injured my neck. I had to have spinal fusion surgery, but I'm not sure that it had anything to do with a stunt. I did. Um, I tore my meniscus in my knee during a, a theater show for the, the the with my partner, my comedy partner, and I. I was doing a, a goof. We were goofing on. So you think you can dance that TV show? And I was dancing, um, and I tore my meniscus, but. Nothing, nothing has ever really gone wrong. I used to walk. You haven't seen it. Um, I was I, I'm 59, so I don't do it as much anymore. But I walked on a tightrope for 30 years. So that I, what you saw me do was a thing called a roll of bullet. It's a board in a tube, and it's pretty easy. But you know, I go up high, so there is more definite definite danger. But I walked on uh, the tightrope about six six feet, and in all the years that I did it, you know, I probably i only fell three times that i can think of that was in an uncontrolled fall where mm, i don't know how this is going to end you know and two of them were in the same show and i i fell backwards fell on my butt and and that was six feet up in the air so my butt was 15 feet up in the air no 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 i'm sorry nine feet up in the air so that's a fair fair uh distance to fall and I, I got lucky and, and never never hurt myself. Not how will it? Good. It's not like wrestling. Um, in professional wrestling, I'm actually friends with Mick Foley. I used to, he, I would hear so many stories about like stunts gone wrong. And uh, yeah, I mean that those guys are flying through the air. There's only so much control. I mean, it's not real. My, that's my opinion. WWE, it's choreographed, and they're making, they're doing moves that they know how to do. But there's an element of a real element of danger that's going on there too. It's 
that may not be just a real wrestling match, but the things that they're doing, those are real and they're dangerous. Oh yeah, absolutely. And like I tell everybody, the main things about wrestling that's actually fake is the competition, meaning it the competition is predetermined, it's acted out, but they're doing and having real stunts done to them. Like they really are being thrown through the air and then body slammed into a hard mat. <laughs> I, it's absolutely. It, that, with the stuff they're doing, you can't fake it. It's, it's, it's real stuff. But you're right, yeah, like, who's going to win? And all of the grandstanding of, all oh, I'm going to break your face. Like, that's all just theater. Yeah. yeah I, mean, I would just say this. I just know, I know some people who are wrestlers. If you dare say to them, that WWE and stuff like that is fake. Oh, boy, you better run. Yeah, though. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's not fair to say it because it's, I mean, they're really risking their bodies and their lives doing it. It's not fair. Yeah, yeah I know. It's like if you tell them it's fake, they'll be like, okay, let me show you what we do real quick and you tell me if you can feel it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a hard no. Yeah. No, no, and they're giants, but it's still got to hurt. Oh, it, yeah. And Mick Foley, oh, my God, he, he, he literally is not phased by pain. He's been through so much. Like, I remember when I was a kid and he would tell stories about his upbringing, and I thought they were fake fictional stories, but apparently he really did his brother and him sometimes wrestle on like pits of thumbtacks when they were growing up. Oh no. I can't imagine. That just sounds like, Oh my, Whoa, that's awful. <laughs> I know. I, he, uh, uh, I don't see how one can live through that. <laughs> no. And what's the point? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So pretend it. Yeah, apparently he was, um, that's how immune to pain he is, that for him, um, pain doesn't bother him. Like, um, my friend and I, who are both friends with him, we, we always joke around. We say if Mick Foley was ever a victim in one of those torture porn horror movies, he would be the one survivor. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, there are there are medical conditions. I don't know if he's got it, but there are medical conditions where you you don't feel the pain. It, it you just don't feel it, and so that's not necessarily a good thing. Pain is a pain is a good message. If you if you're standing in fire and you don't know it, like you can't feel it because there's no pain. Like I want that message. Yeah, exactly. Because um. You, you never know what can be done to your body physically if um, you're not feeling pain. Be because um, you could end up doing real harm to yourself and not even know it. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I would not want that at all. But, as, as tempting as it seems, like, oh, I, I don't, you know, nobody likes to feel pain, but it's, a, it's, it's an important message in general, yeah, for sure. 
Yeah, Coley knows a thing or two about, like, having moves done to him. Coley's actually a martial artist who's been doing martial arts for over 20 years. Wow. Yeah, well, I'm just What degree are you? Uh, so, I've studied two martial arts. Uh, I have a black belt in, uh, they're both, both Korean. Uh, Hang Sudo, which is, like, that's, like, a more militaristic form of Taekwondo. Okay. And Hapkido, which is a Korean form of Aikido. So, you know, thing is, they're both joint manipulation. The other one's like a Korean form of karate. And once you hit black belt and you don't go with flow, my, 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 you will have swollen joints. Oh. And, no, and this instructor that I had, he's former Air Force, he said, he said, he did not play around. Okay, you better go with this, otherwise something's gonna happen. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah, he used to. Uh, Coley would tell me stories how there were times people would go into his school when he was teaching classes, and um, they would disrespect him. They'd be like, "Your school is a joke. I can take you on," and he'd bring them on the mat and be like, "Show me what you got." And there were times that they'd end up walking away with broken wrists by challenging him like that. Oh, like he, yeah. Well, he, his thing, because uh, he was very much into the culture, not just the martial arts side of it. And he also did, like, a real school. Like, it was legit martial arts. And, you know, he had what they would call uh, mixed dojos instead of dojos because the people would just... Bring you in there, take your money, teach you nothing. So this ah. person would come in, and he'd be like, okay, come on, step on the mat. And most of the time they wouldn't, and if they did, they, yeah, they didn't know their stuff, and they'd walk out for it. Yeah, that was one of his favorite phrases, though, which I, I just thought was hilarious. It's a Mick Dojo. That is Mick good. McDonald's. <laughs> like a Mick, like a McMansion. Exactly. Yeah, we have a lot of those in South Florida. Um, The Rock used to live, speaking of wrestling, The Rock used to live in a McMansion right around here in Davie, Florida. Ah. Yeah, this chicken place that, um, that I used to eat at a lot before it went out of business, he apparently used to eat there sometimes twice a day. Well, if you want to see the rock eat, I imagine it'd be entertaining. He probably puts down, puts away a lot of chicken. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, sadly, he was never there any of the times that I was there. Yeah. It's, it's super uninteresting. Like, I've been around a lot of, a lot of, like, famous actors and musicians through work and through just living in LA, which I lived in LA for five years and, and it's way less interesting. Like they're just not as interesting as you hope they're going to be in, in general, in, in general, they're just regular people just like everybody else. And it, it rarely lives up to the height. The one, the one that I was, that I would say outshone the hype for me. I had dinner once with, um, through friends of mine with uh, John Malkovich and that guy 
is just he exceeded every expectation I could ever have had. He was just so one of the great nights of chatting and conversation and eating and having a wonderful time. He was just so brilliantly smart and kind and generous with his energy and money. Just, I was just such a, I'll never forget what, what a gentleman he really was. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard great things about him. Um, very talented actor too. I would love to meet him. Um, I've met a, a lot of celebrities and yeah, I agree. I mean, at first you're like, oh, wow, I can't believe it's actually them. But then you real, um, you, you don't end up going to sleep that night feeling really that much different because you met that person. Yeah, right. No, yeah. You're, you're, <laughs> your head's going to hit the pillow in the same way. It's not going to change you any. Yeah. yeah. And um, what's it called? The worst is if you meet one of your heroes and they turn out not to be the most friendly person. Like, luckily, most of the ones I've met have been pretty nice. But every now and again, I'll meet one who um is not that friendly and just seems like even at a place where there's normally a meet and greet that they just don't want to be bothered even there. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely guys like that that I've met and folks, you know, and, but I, they get to be who they are. They might, you don't know everyone's story, right? Like they could be, they could have anxiety. They could just not be comfortable with that sort of random interaction. Most of the time, people who are in the public eye, they're pretty good about it because they have to deal with it a lot. And so you learn how to be good at it. But occasionally, there you come across people who just don't don't want it, and you know you don't know you don't know what their story is, and let them be. Yeah, and a lot of times, um, celebrities are actually not that recognizable when you see them in person. Like, um, they look significantly different than they do in movies. Some of them, like. There's been times I've gone to a live comedy show or something for somebody who I've seen in a lot of movies, but never live. And then they come out on stage and I'll be like, that's them. Yeah, yeah I wonder. I, some, you know, people do change in performance. They, they become larger than life. And the energy that they put out that, we, that we're receiving definitely enhances the their sort of core humanity it, uh, in, in ways that are, it's kind of hard to quantify how or, or why they, why it worked that way, but definitely it is impactful. Performance is, as far as the way people perceive us. When yeah, and I can tell you real quick, I'll just give you something that this is, people don't really realize this. A lot of extroverts actually get their energy from other people. They don't necessarily generate their own energy. A lot of it is when you're around people, you feed off people. And I'm sure you know this. Most comedians and musicians do. And that's where you're saying that that larger than life personality just rears its little head. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. It is. It's so much easier to do a show for people who are giving you a lot of energy. If not, then I have to I have to create it myself. And it's so much more tiring and it, and it can come off as trying too hard. 
yeah. as well. When people who've been to the Renaissance Festival um, see you outside of it, is, do you have people come up and recognize you from it? Yeah. Oh, sure. I mean, not not like everywhere I go, but in places where I've been performing for a long time, I definitely get recognized. And I've had some interesting um moments uh, usually it's not interesting usually it's like it's at the target and they're like hey are you and i'm like what like do you look familiar like oh uh, yeah like how do i know you and like it becomes my job to <laughs> to help them and then once they get it they're like oh my gosh we love your show we love your show and they're very excited but they don't have anything else to gain they just are like they remember you from the thing that you were on stage and now i'm holding a box of cereal you know and they 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 want you to supply the energy and i'm really usually not prepared to do that like i'm always polite and i'm always grateful that people you know tell me that i was impactful um and and always gracious and grateful but it's not really my job to to you know start making jokes and i i don't i don't do it but i did but but i have had a couple of like some some fun moments like one one time i i think my favorite one is i was in in la and where i stay with my buddy is in echo park and his how echo park is very close to downtown la and and um it's three blocks from dodger stadium and I had uh, had an audition in Chicago with this director, and it, it was flying back to LA on the, the same flight that I was flying to LA. And we see each other, and it's a Southwest flight, so we can pick anywhere. So we sit and talk for, for the four-hour flight the whole time. We were just like a couple of jackasses just chirping away. And he's like, "Hey, you want to come see a Dodgers game?" And I said, "Sure." And he said, "He's he's had." tickets ever since dodger stadium opened his dad got season tickets they were front row seats at dodger stadium and i said sure so we were three weeks three blocks away so we walk there and as we're walking up the hill if you are you probably have you been to dodger stadium uh no i've actually sadly never been to la um i know a few people out there but yeah never got to go to that part of california just northern cali like san francisco and napa okay well san francisco i mean the um dodger stadium is kind of up it's elevated from the roads that are around it so you have to kind of go uphill to get it and one of the main entrances off of sunset boulevard is it, they, all these cars are streaming past and me and my buddy and he's you know dressed like a hipster and i'm i'm dressed like a suburban dad of, of moderate means and and and, and the, the, their cars are streaming past but one car kind of goes past and then backs up and or kind of slows down and we catch up to it and then it goes forward and then it, and we catch up to it because it slows down again and finally i look over at them to see why they keep doing that and these four twenty somethings and it jammed into a corolla starts screaming renaissance man renaissance man they were so excited to spot me at walking up the hill 
to go to Dodger Stadium, but I was like, I had no game whatsoever. I just, I had all, it's embarrassing as hell. All I could do was like turn to him and I just did like an air guitar, like, like, like wave, like, hi, it's me. And now I'm going to a Dodgers game. Like it was, there was, there was no, I did not, I did not add to their life in any measurable way. (laughs) Spotting me in public. You ever do any autograph signing events? Well, I've I've signed you know thousands of them because and I I rarely sign as my name. It's almost always Mooney, and I have a like a sort of a cartoony way that I sign my my name. And you know, but like I sell CDs. I've got two CDs of funny songs and my DVD. So I've and T-shirts. I've signed. Oh God thousands and thousands of times but never i never have been invited to hang out and sign my name (laughs) on any like outside event but but yeah um after your performance um are a lot of people generous i know like you guys always have um a tip bucket and stuff or people usually generous after your shows um well there's a skill to that you know like and it's it's all in the delivery of your hat hat speech hat is called passing the hat asking for tips okay so that's that's the vernacular that we use so the hat pass speech is how do you turn their good time into income for yourself so I don't know if you remember my half past speech, but it's it's very finely tuned to deliver laughs all along the way. And I think they hopefully my goal is that they stop thinking of it as me asking for money and it becomes more uh, of just another part of the show. And it's it differs wherever you go. Sometimes it's hardly anything and sometimes it can be better you know it just depends on on where where you are and florida is one of the harder ones yeah that's what i've heard a lot of um entertainers they don't like coming to florida because especially south florida they say people are underwhelmed because we have so much activity going on down here that when they see it in Miami, if they see celebrities, they're just used to it, opposed to a place like Mick was saying he could go somewhere like Ohio and everybody comes up to him excited. Exactly. It, 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 if, exactly. If, I don't know that it's only because they're underwhelmed. I think that there's other factors as well about South Florida. I think people are distracted and it's a, it can be a hostile environment to live in. And I think that there's defenses are up. I think it's part of the social fabric. That's just my, from my, my instinct about it. And from having performed all around the country and every region is different. The way people respond to the show, it's, it's, it's never different. Like Ohio is always like Ohio. Wisconsin is always like Wisconsin. L.A. is always like L.A. South Florida is always like South Florida. It's very challenging to perform 
in South Florida. I think people are resistant to giving up uh, their own personal um, individuality and to, to for a show like mine to work, for a show like a Renaissance Fair show to work, you have to join the team, become part of the audience. And we work as a unit. And some areas of the country are much more amenable to that. And I think in South Florida, they're resistant. The requirement, if we're going to go far, if we're going to go deep, you, you've got you've to hook in and give up some of your individuality to become part of the team. They don't want to do it. Not, sometimes they do, but it's, it's almost always a fight for it. And there's only so far we can go. Whereas in Ohio or in Wisconsin, they want to do it. That's what they came for. And they're, they, they don't have a wall up for it. Yeah, South Florida can be a tough environment for entertainment. Um, even the comedy scene here, um, it, it's decent, but it's very clicky. People are um, somewhere like Tampa. I heard everybody on the scenes like family here. It's it's more about like who's close to whom, and um, if you're not close to that person, then they're not likely to book you and stuff. Yeah, um, it, it, that's totally counter. Like, to co comedy is it's about making them laugh and hooking in. I mean, it shouldn't. If you can hook in, doesn't what difference does it make? The, 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 the funny people should be on stage and the not funny people should not. Yeah, exactly. And the ones who the audience is actually going to like um, that. And, and also the ones who can draw in a crowd. I think drawing in a crowd is another big factor. Like um, there's some people whose comedy is for such an acquired taste that they only have like a small percentage who really wants to tune into them. And then there's other ones who are for much more mainstream appeal. Yeah. 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 Like some people are comics, comics, you know, that comics are like, oh God, they're so brilliant in the way that they are maintaining their identity and who, what, what their comic thrust is, but it doesn't necessarily translate to the public. And those, you know, those are the ones that I'm most interested in seeing. And they say, um, if in comedy, never be too smart for your audience to be smart, but not too smart that your jokes are going to go over some people's heads. Yeah, no, you don't want, you don't want to do that. You can be still be freaking smart, but you still have to know who you're talking to. Like Bill Hicks was awesome at that. He was way smarter than them. But he just used that as a tool to hook them. And broke. I was I saw a Bill Hicks show once where it was the greatest lesson in comedy. I was probably twenty three. It was the greatest lesson in comedy I ever had. Was a Bill Hicks show, and I got to meet him afterwards. And we had a long conversation afterwards. Um, he was also very very good guy. Um, but as we know, he was abrasive as hell on stage, right? So he's he's going off on um, the crowd, talk talking about um, dumb dumb effing yuppies, 
yuppies this, yuppies that, yuppies. And they're laughing, but he won't shut up about it. He's just going hard. He's just ramming it down their throats. And finally they get, they realize that he's talking about them. <laughs> he was talking about them. And they go, and then he started to boo him. And he won't stop, and he just keeps going. And then they start booing. They're just Now the whole audience is booing him. They were just howling with laughter. And then in three minutes, they're now booing him. And he stops and he says, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. You don't get to boo me. Shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. You are too fucking stupid to boo me. You are dumb fucking yuppies, and I'm going to win you back in five minutes with a dick joke anyway, so shut the fuck up. <laughs> it was dead silence. I just dead got, silence. I got to hit stop recording real quick. And so yeah, Bill Hicks, um, he was a warrior too. He, um... He was performing till his dying days. Like, um, I think he his pancreatic cancer had already kicked in when he did his last special. Yeah, yeah, he was. It was he went quick too. So uh, to finish that story, um, he he's he was just telling them. He 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 told them to shut the fuck up because they were because he was gonna win him back with a dick jump, and then. He turns around in the dead silence of that room. It was it was so uncomfortable, but it was brilliant. I mean, I was I was amazed that he had to get the biggest balls just to just to lay that turd right on the stage and then turn around in silence, take a drink, and he was in no rush. And then he turns around and he launches into this routine about a bit about rednecks. And then he's he's miming like literally like five minutes later he's miming a giant penis with his with his forearm and they're howling and he lets the laugh die and he says see I want you back with the dick joke <laughs> it was the greatest that was the greatest lesson in comedy that I ever had which is you can come back is okay discomfort is energy because you can turn that back into comedy. But you have to trust your material. He would not have been able to do that if he was worried that the next routine that he was going to do was absolutely going to kill. He absolutely knew exactly what is. And when he broke them down and then picked them back up, there was he could do no wrong at that point. It was it was masterclass. But yeah, and I also really like the comics who um they can take a really simple concept, but they're so spot on about it in a way that we can all relate to, to the point where they turn something very basic and simple, absolutely brilliant. Like I feel both Bill Cosby and um, George Carlin had that skill. Oh, for sure. They absolutely, Bill, Bill Cosby, you know, I know it's not PC right now to like him, but as a, Early on, he was probably the first comic that I ever listened. I used to listen to his records when I was when I was little, and the whole I think the greatest thing I'd ever heard up until in comedy up until I was like sixteen years old was "Dad is Great." He gave us chocolate cake. Like yeah. I couldn't. I, I was dying. I was literally dying. I couldn't get air. In the dentist segment, he, it was brilliant. Um, he was so spot on, especially about what it's like to get a Novocaine shot where he said they take the needle out and half your face feels like it's sliding off of your skull and your bottom, yeah. your bottom lip is now in your lap. <laughs> it is. And then he's making the sound 
of of he's got that big his lip is down and he's like oh my god yeah so funny so funny yeah you i hated getting novocaine shots as a kid for the exact reasons he described yeah well i can't who does i chewed my face apart when i was a kid getting novocaine shots Yeah, and he was so spot on, too, about how then they tell you to take a drink, and um, you go to take a sip of water, and it falls on you. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Holy, did you ever get Novocaine shots as a kid? Uh, yeah. And I totally agree with all y'all. Next thing you know, you can't feel nothing. You can bite your freaking lip and you never know it until you see the blood. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, Bill Cos... I actually saw him live three times. And honestly, I couldn't have been more devastated to discover what we discovered about him. Because he was somebody, not only as a comic, but as a person or so-called person we thought he was who I always really looked up to. I always saw him as like a great inspiration for young minds, especially those who grow up less fortunate on how you can be anything, how you can turn a lemon filled life into lemonade. Really? I mean, he was, he was a great example of how talent and kindness and uh, a sort of sense of community and giving back to the world and an idea of how the, the work that you do not only lifts yourself up, but it lifts your people up as well. He was a shining example. And for him to, for it to come out to, that he was that guy too, it, it's it is just it's just devastating, but it doesn't take away the fact that he was so damn funny. Yeah, and that he came from such a underprivileged background and became so successful. Like he grew up in North Philly, and yeah, North Philly is the roughest section of Philadelphia, and he grew up in like the forties, a time period where. African-Americans were treated particularly poorly, and he was able to rise above all of that miraculously. Yeah. Well, and he used it in his comedy, too, with the Fat Albert um, cartoon. You you guys were probably younger than that, but did you ever see any of the Fat Albert uh, cartoons? Yeah, I did, actually. Yeah, I did um, actually catch a few reruns, and it was a really cute show. Yeah, I grew up on that. So I was watching every every Saturday morning. When I was growing up, it was Saturday morning cartoons. Anybody my age or you know around my age, cartoons weren't on except for Saturday mornings. And Fat Albert was on for a long time. Love grew up with that too. And that was a prime example of a show that ter- showed the positive side of darkness. Like um, those kids all lived in North Philly, but it portrayed them as like everyday kids just like everyday kids like anyone who grew up in any all-american city it didn't portray them as any differently because they lived in the ghetto 
Yeah, exactly. They were just normal kids doing normal stuff. Yeah, it's such a shame because, yeah, I almost looked at him as a hero to people. and He was. I mean, he was given honorary doctorates. He was... He, he played this, you know, this on, on his show he that, that he had created. He was a doctor, you know, and, and that image infiltrated into his life, too. He he kind of had this aura of of um, of of high intelligence and and greatness that we we just all accepted. I think I, I, he was he was beloved by everybody. Yeah, um, and it's rare for a celebrity to be discovered that many years after their prime. Like, usually, if a celebrity's got skeletons in their closet, it normally takes at least less than 20 years for it to be discovered. But with him, um, it took, like, long after the prime of his career. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely later. I still feel bad for what he went through with um, his son and everything. I know that took a huge toll on him, the murder of his son. Awful. Just, I think, uh, we lost a child, so I do know the pain of of losing a child. Uh, But it was not, murder is, it's just so... Oh man, I, I can't imagine. But we lost we lost a daughter to leukemia. Oh man, I'm so sorry. Um, oh, thank you. My heart goes my heart goes out to you and your family. Thank you. But she inspired a uh, you know her her journey and death inspired a an organization that is now a national organization at Renaissance Fairs all around the country that is a, a, a fully accredited 501c3 that's been around for 20 years and it's called the rescue foundation and it provides aid for anyone who works at the renaissance fairs to help alleviate um, medical uh, related debt and it's they we've given out over a million dollars in direct aid and many million dollars in advocating for reducing bills and we do um we do programs on site bringing doctors and dentists and nurses to do checkups and testing and we do mental health and dental advocacy as well so it's you know as tragic as it is and 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 was a lot of times good can come out of that tragedy and since you're stuck with it, you might as well do the best you can with with that and turn it into turn it into lemonade, like you said. Is yeah, there a way to donate, like online, to that cause? Um, I'd like to donate to the cause if if there's a way to do it online. Thank you. Yes, there is. It's it's there's a a website. It's called rescuefoundation.org, and but rescue is spelled R E S C U. There's no E because it stands for Renaissance Entertainers Services and Crafters United. And so it's just R-E-S-C-U foundation.org. 
and you can, you know, there's you know, a website with lots of information on there and a way to donate. Thank you. Coley, you've been to the Renaissance Festival in the past, right? Yes, I have. And I was invited by some friends. I'd never heard of it, despite being a native of South Florida. And yeah, it was an awesome time and I had some fun. So yeah, definitely. Cool. Me too. Yeah. If there's anything I would have to complain about, it would be the fact that all the shows were going on simultaneously back to back. So it was impossible to catch like every show, even if you were there for eight hours. Yeah, there's too much. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I'm a big fan of history. And, you know, medieval times, I remember growing up, medieval times was like the bomb. I mean, that was my, that was my eighth grade field trip. We took the three C, uh, uh, medieval times in Orlando and nostalgia and history that brought to life in that renaissance festival. That's the hope. That's, I think that's the draw, you know, but also I think the thing that gets you people back is like, wow, there's so much, there's, who knew? There's just so much going on. It is meant to throw a lot of spaghetti at the wall and, and, you can't possibly do everything in one day. Yeah, I went there three times and I still didn't catch every show because they just, they go on back to back from one another. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I think it takes someone like yourself there um, to make sure that you, you are a part of the Renaissance Festival. So anyone who's gone for like, I don't know, years, that's the person you want to hook up with because they know their way around and you will get to see as many shows as you think you can get. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. If you, if you can be sort of have a friend who's been there before and is a, is a, a guide, that is a good, that is a good introduction to it. Is yeah. And uh, each time I was there, I would see which shows were going on when, and I could never decide like, um, I'm like, do I want to see the first 10 minutes of one and then the next 20 minutes of another? Do I want to skip this one and just see that one? <laughs> yeah, it's hard to tell which ones you want to see. Some some shows are, some. I mean, just like anything, some shows are going to be more um, up your alley and some shows are going to be less up your alley. And, and when you're coming in blind and not having ever had an experience at the Renaissance Fair before, like it, you don't, there's no way to know which are the ones you really be, which are gonna, you're going to hook into better. So you kind of got to learn, just got to try. In fact, um, I um, was hungry each time, but I, was always, I kept, I was afraid to late, wait in line to get food because I was worried that then I was going to miss too much of a show I wanted to see. Oh, uh, yeah, I bet. Yeah, and the lines can be long, long, long. So, Coley, um, do, did you ever get to see Phil's act? I did not get the chance to see it, but I know, I know, I know I've heard it is a good one to see so if you're there and you're gonna go be there make sure you see his show thank you yeah i i did catch it the first time well i caught your solo show the first time i was there which i loved i'm a big fan of miming and miming and circus acts and 
then I caught the duet show you did with Broom twice, both times awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's my favorite show to do, because I don't have to, I, you know, my, my show is like, it's like, a, like I said, it's kind of like a machine, like I'm maintaining that machine, right? But there's no machine with the Mooney and Broom, it is just it flows as it flows and i don't have to think i just react and that freedom is like ah oh, it's so fun to swim around in that pool did did you it. ever almost accidentally swallow the cigarette that he throws in your mouth during that oh i've had it bounce off my uvula before a lit cigarette bounce off my uvula <laughs> for sure i've done a lot of crazy stuff just make, there's another show that I've done. I haven't done it in a while, but it was called Mooney and Friends, and I would just invite different knuckleheads with, that had a lot of different kinds of knucklehead skills, like we all do. And and I uh, we, we we it was based. It was like a reality show slash uh, variety uh, comedy show. And we, ne we not only we never repeat a show, we never repeated a bit. Every single bit, every time, was manufactured and thought up on the spot so the audience and, and the, the premise behind the show was that failure is an option and failure is uncomfortable and when we couldn't do it because we were literally it proved to the audience that, that it really that that was real like that we really didn't know what we were going to do and once you fail and then you succeed after you fail the response is almost twice what it would have been had you succeeded the whole time and the one time there's a guy who does whip, uh, flaming whips. Oh yeah, and Jack. What's his name? Jacko Whippo Whippet yeah, or Jock, something. Jock the Whipper. Yeah. It was a different guy um, uh, who's been around a little bit longer than this Jock named Adam Crack. And the bit that we that we came up with was with the flaming with the, with the, the flaming whip, and it makes a ball of fire that's literally like six feet round when you crack a whip when it's full of fire. And the, joke, the bit was, let's see if you can light the cigarette in my mouth with the ball of fire. That was the bit that we came up with on, on the stage. And someone took, had their, 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 uh, their camera on the really fast one. And, and there were frames where you could see the, the, the whip moving and then a tiny bit of fire, then a medium fire, then you couldn't see me at all because it was completely obscured by the ball there. And then you go down on the next frame. It was incredible. It didn't work. Like, we couldn't light the cigarette, but <laughs> it was very spectacular. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I, I wish I could have seen that one. Um. A year ago was the first time I had ever been been to the Ren Fair before. Yeah, that was I did that one for a number of years and I loved doing that show. One of my favorite shows of all time to do. Just making it up every single time. Yeah. You know what, Mooney, I take that back. I did see your show and it made me laugh my ass off. So if you haven't seen it, you gotta see it. Oh well, awesome. Thanks. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, last year was the first year that I had actually gone and um 
I was really blown away. Like I, I had never been to an experience before where you really feel like you're stepping into another world. It's kind of like how Dorothy f- felt when she stepped into Oz. It, yeah, that's the goal. You know, glad it worked. Yeah, that you go in there and immediately you feel like you're almost in a different world and then as soon as you walk out when the show when it's all over and walk back to your car you feel literally entirely different than you just did 10 minutes ago. That's the best review you could get. That's awesome. That's what we're going for. Making an impact on people's lives, making them feel good and go, "Wow, I I feel so great. I can't believe I had that much fun. I didn't expect it." Yeah. But, but yeah, and I'll definitely be going back next year. Um, it's something I'm gonna make um a yearly ritual for myself. And cool. Well, if uh, I'm gonna be there next year, let me uh, if you know, let's stay in touch, and I'd like to see you you perform as well. And I usually fly in on Fridays, and sometimes I stay, so I should be able to fit in a show somewhere. Um, any plans in sometime this year to return to South Florida? No, I'm doing one. In, I'm doing a festival. It's the very end of my season. It's in the Tampa area. Uh, so that's about the closest I will be is up in Tampa. But yeah, um, I still need to make my own YouTube page, but I do have a lot of clips on on YouTube under Dan Weiss Improv. All right, and that, and that's if I just uh, Dan Weiss Improv. If I if I look look that up, yeah, you'll find clips of me at like the Dania Beach Improv and the Palm Beach Improv. Okay, cool. All right, I'll check that out. That that that's for sure. And if anyone wants to check out a video of mine, um. I recommend searching on YouTube, and you should check it out, Dan. It's called The Greatest Mooney, M-O-O-N-I-E, Mooney, The Greatest Mooney Participant Ever. And it's 13 minutes of some of the funniest stuff you can imagine. And it, and I can say that 100% without it being too self-aggrandizing because it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with this guy that I brought on stage who I tried not to bring because I could tell he was drunk. But the audience, I, I pulled too many guys up, it wouldn't work, and then it didn't work. And then I, the audience kept looking at that guy like, you got to pull him. And then it, it erupted. It was so funny. So greatest movie participant ever is the, the one you want to check out. Oh, man. Yeah, I'll definitely check it out. Um, So before we conclude um, another episode of Vanilla Weiss and the Nostalgic Nerds, um. Phil, is there any, or AKA Mooney, is there any information that you want to give your fans about any upcoming projects or where they can find you? Well, just, you know, the, the Mooney show.com and, and I might, I'm just doing mostly just Renaissance fairs this year, but I've got a few, um, I'm going to, I'm working on um, a solo theater show that, I have done elements of before, but but more like a kind of thing that they could have a run, but that's not coming up for for a little while, and I got to get together and do a book. So uh, hopefully those projects will come out within the next couple of years. 
And Coley, is there any place where we can find your musical work, such as the scores you recorded? Coley, did we lose you? Shit, I think we lost him. All right. Well, it was nice to nice to meet him. Yeah. Nice to, you know, chat with you guys. You too. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, this has been another, this concludes another chapter of Vanilla Weiss and the Nostalgic Nerds, and tune in, the episode will be published soon, so tune in next week, and um, we will, and thank you so much, Phil, for being a guest on this week's show. It was My such, pleasure, thanks for asking. It was such an honor to have you on. Thank you.